Hi, I'm Heather Mulder. And I'm Janice Greeno, and you're listening to Dementia Untangled, where we explore the topic of dementia through conversations with physicians, experts, and community leaders. Our discussions focus on innovative ideas, practical strategies, and proven methods to guide caregivers along a supportive path. Hello, and welcome to Dementia Untangled. Thank you for joining us for this episode of our podcast. Today, our conversation will be with Dr. David Sprecher, a neurologist and director of movement disorders at Banner Sun Health Research Institute. And we're going to be discussing Parkinson's disease and more specifically, Parkinson's disease dementia. Parkinson's disease, according to the Parkinson's Foundation, is known most for its motor or movement symptoms, things like tremor or a slowed movement, but cognitive changes can also be among the more common Parkinson's disease non-movement symptoms. Actually, about half of those with Parkinson's will have mild cognitive impairment. As the disease progresses, people living with Parkinson's disease can develop more significant uh, memory and thinking problems, which sometimes is then called dementia. Heather, just this week, I was asked by someone in my very close circle, does everyone who has Parkinson's get dementia too? I am so glad that Dr. Sprecher is back with us. His episode is a listener favorite. It is in season one of Dementia Untangled, and if you haven't listened, it's titled How to Understand, Diagnose, and Treat. And right now, that episode is ranked number three out of all of our episodes. And in that episode, he took us through the basics, untangling dementia and the less common forms, reminding us how important a specific diagnosis is. So it is so great to have him back to answer the question I was asked about Parkinson's and to have a conversation with us about this complex topic. Welcome back, Dr. Sprecher. Hi, thanks so much for having me back. Last time you were with us, you told us about your role at Banner Sun Health Research Institute, but we are curious to learn a little more about what inspired you to join the field of neurology and support people living with neurodegenerative disorders. Thanks for asking. You know, this is kind of public knowledge. It's, It's on my bio on many websites, but I had personally been motivated to pursue movement disorders because I had a movement disorder myself. I I had uh, what we call tics, kind of movements and sounds that I would make growing up and even as a young adult that I couldn't really fully control. But when I was in neurology training, I figured out that was uh, Tourette syndrome, which is a movement disorder. And my mentors, when I was in training, uh, really inspired me not just to pursue movement disorder training, but to always incorporate research to find better treatments uh, for our patients when we see them in the clinic. Um, among those who really influenced me was uh, Dr. Norman Foster, who was the director of our dementia clinic when I was in uh, residency training at the University of Utah and when I started my first faculty job there. So I think I'd give a lot of credit to him in inspiring me to really focus in uh, the neurodegenerative illnesses, which are really 
the most common that we see, not just in the dementia clinic, but in the movement disorder clinic. What an interesting story. Thank you so much for sharing with us. You know, when I think of Parkinson's disease, and I, I don't think I'm alone with this, I immediately think of movement changes. And often people are surprised to learn that there are actually dementia-related changes that can accompany Parkinson's disease. Can you talk to us about those? So even though Parkinson's disease is first diagnosed based on the motor symptoms or the movement problems, even uh, at presentation, when we first diagnose people in the clinic, at least one in four have noticed more problems than we'd expect just from normal aging with memory or thinking. And in particular, it's not just remembering new information, but paying attention, following conversations, uh, being able to multitask, um, getting turned around with new directions, or even in finding a way around places we, we normally used to be good at. For people who were good at remembering names, noticing they're having more of a problem, for people who used to be really good at remembering where the car was parked, now noticing that they're turned around and it, they have to kind of use their app on their phone to find it more often. I've also heard people share about language challenges. One of the most common things that I hear are that people start to notice they're having a lot more trouble, not just remembering names of people, which is common as we get older, but coming up with the appropriate word for things in the course of a normal conversation. So we call that word finding difficulty. They also, and this is in part due to their attention problems or trouble with multitasking, they kind of lose their train of thought more easily in a conversation. And this can really interrupt the flow of that. And along with that, Dr. Sprecher, I understand that there can be mood changes that can accompany this as well. Yes. You know, even though we talk about Parkinson's disease as being a problem of dopamine deficiency that causes movement problems and may to some extent affect mood, there are other important brain chemicals like serotonin and norepinephrine that also are low in, in the brains of people with Parkinson's. And this is part of why 40 to 50% of people with Parkinson's disease have mood problems with tendency to be more depressed, uh, being more prone to anxiety, feeling nervous, worried, or tense, becoming more irritable. And some of that has to do with that heightened level of anxiety, but it's also kind of a, just a shorter fuse in general. And then a fourth problem, what we call apathy, where they're just less motivated to do activities or, or spend time with people. And along with that, even visual perception changes happen. Is that right? That's correct. There's, there's a couple of different problems. Color vision discrimination may be affected, but more importantly, visual spatial perception. So having a little bit more trouble parking the car in a tight space or in a tight garage, but also getting turned around when, when learning new directions may be a, a kind of a real life example of that. Going through this presentation, we're talking about things like memory changes, attention changes, word finding difficulties. These sound really similar to the symptoms also of Alzheimer's disease. 
Are there differences in how they present? So it's a complicated question, but I'm going to give you as straightforward an answer as I can. So one of the fascinating things we've learned because of all the people over the past 30 years that have literally donated their brains to science at programs like the one we have here at uh, Banner Sun Health is majority of people who have Parkinson's disease who develop dementia over the course of their illness also have Alzheimer's disease. So it's not just a question of whether they present differently, but whether you can actually have both. And the answer is a resounding yes. Now, Alzheimer's disease usually causes more problems with remembering in a way that we have trouble storing new information. So if you've done the screening tests in the clinics or your loved one has, you know, they'll ask you to remember a certain number of words after they distract you for a bit. And what we see is people with Alzheimer's disease don't store the information to start with. And so when we give them hints like category cues or multiple choice uh, to choose from, they can't get the answers even with those hints. Whereas if someone just had dementia due to Parkinson's and there's no underlying Alzheimer's, they're often still storing that new information. So it's more a problem retrieving the words, so word finding difficulty. Or if they don't store the information, it's often more related to an attention problem. So bottom line is, well over half of people with Parkinson's dementia have both Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. But if the dementia is just due to Parkinson's, people don't necessarily have memory loss. They have problems with those other cognitive functions like we talked about earlier. Thank you for explaining those complexities. I'm also wondering if there are different care strategies for someone who's living with Parkinson's that are different or similar to Alzheimer's. You've heard about this in some of the earlier podcasts that even though memory loss is the most prominent feature in Alzheimer's, Later on in the course, people can have these other issues with the ability to pay attention or, or multitask, come up with words. And, and there are variants with Alzheimer's where particularly the um, language problems are, are there earlier on. With Parkinson's, it's particularly important, and I know people kind of joke about this, that this is sometimes more of a male-predominant selective hearing problem to begin with, but in Parkinson's is a more male-predominant illness. But it really is true that someone with Parkinson's cannot pay attention and remember things if they're multitasking when you have that conversation. And, and this is something that people even get told in marriage counseling is if you want your loved one to remember something, you have to kind of interrupt what they're doing and tell them, I'm telling you something important now. I want you to stop what you're doing and give me your full attention. And don't kind of chastise them if you told them something while they were multitasking and they didn't remember. Because even more than before, they really have trouble struggling to pay attention to what you're saying while they're in the middle of kind of cutting their food for a meal, checking the mail, typing, typing a response to a text message. Any of those distractions can make it virtually impossible for that loved one with, with Parkinson's to remember important information. 
that's one of, I think, the most critical um, steps to take early on, not only with conversations and remembering things, but also for someone with Parkinson's in planning their day, that they're going to really do one activity at a time and not keep shifting back and forth. Planning the day so that they don't misplace objects because they're always going to take time to put them in the same place every time where they can always see them right in front of their face before they leave the house. I know one of the um, common occurrences that happens with Parkinson's disease is falls. Can you talk to us about strategies to try to prevent falls? Yeah, thanks for your question. You know, one of the most challenging aspects of Parkinson's, both for the patients and their loved ones, is falls. And along with the progression of the cognitive issues, the dementia-type problems, people also develop balance problems, as well as freezing of gait, where they kind of get stuck in place and, and have a stutter step, or destination of gait, where their upper body is kind of too far ahead of their lower body, and they take several steps and, and then lose their balance. All of these problems don't respond well to medications, and eventually even physical therapy may not work quite well enough. Furthermore, people can have autonomic nervous system problems where the standing blood pressure drops too much when they stand, and that can have a treatment and is important uh, for their neurologist to screen for. Over the course of the illness, people get to a point where they cannot walk safely without supervision. And this is very difficult for people to accept because they want to maintain independence of their loved one for as long as possible. But it may not be possible late in the course, especially after someone develops dementia, because they won't remember to ask for help and they'll still be impulsive and get up when unsupervised and then fall. So it's important to be able to maintain continuous supervision late in the course once people become a severe fall risk. That is such important information. And late in the progression, we have fall risk, but how does age factor into the dementia component? One thing I just briefly reiterate is that while trouble coming up with words walking in a room, forget why you went there. Those can be features of normal aging. Dementia is not a normal part of aging, but the causes like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, which can coexist, are more common as we get older. So those mild effects of aging can be compounded with the effects of Parkinson's and Alzheimer's on the brain and eventually lead to dementia. And so older individuals are going to be prone to dementia earlier on in the course of their illness than someone who's diagnosed at a relatively young age, meaning before the age of 50. So I want to go back to that question that Janice brought up that she heard recently, and it's a, a, a phrase I hear often too. Will everyone who has Parkinson's disease get Parkinson's disease dementia if they live long enough? I know there's a lot of information out there. I think it's fair to say, however, that the majority of people with Parkinson's, if they live long enough, will develop dementia. The one rare exception of that, you know, you've um, kind of brought up to me that we have some 
famous movie stars out there diagnosed very young, before the age of 30, with someone who's diagnosed before the age of 40, there is a rare genetic form or there are a few rare genetic causes of Parkinson's that just cause motor symptoms, but without a lot of the other non-motor. And so if someone has a very young age of onset and they have certain rare genetic forms, then they may not develop the other non-motor issues like the low standing blood pressure or the dementia. Um, they will develop the other delayed complications of levodopa therapy, like those dyskinesias and wearing off between dose. Now, for everyone else, there are statistics from Australia where people were followed for 20 years and 80% of, you know, among those who are still alive 20 years later, 80% had dementia. There are statistics from Europe in an older population, people uh, average age in the early 70s followed for eight years, majority, so 80% had dementia in that period of time. So 80% is kind of the number that you'll often hear from those larger, longer-term studies. Some studies have found somewhat more conservative estimates following older uh, individuals. And I definitely say we have in our retirement community in Sun City, a lot of individuals who have had Parkinson's that started in their 60s or 70s and who are now in their 80s and still doing reasonably well cognitively. So we don't fully understand how to prevent dementia due to Parkinson's, but we like to think that lifestyle measures like addressing sleep problems, healthy diet, a heart-healthy diet is a brain-healthy diet keeping both cognitively active and socially engaged because social activities stimulate the mind and the brain as well. We like to think that all these lifestyle measures can improve the odds of retaining cognitive function over the course of the illness. So if someone has a healthy lifestyle, that could help the disease not to progress as quickly. But overall, does Parkinson's progress quicker with some people? And if so, why? So it's a very important question that we don't yet have an answer to. We think of Parkinson's disease as a spectrum of disorders. We call the Lewy body disorders. On the far end of the spectrum, the most aggressive form is called dementia with Lewy bodies, where people have dementia problems even in their very first year of symptoms. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we have people with Parkinson's disease that don't develop dementia even after you know, 15, 20 years. Um, in between, we have Parkinson's disease dementia. So that's the major those majority of individuals with Parkinson's that eventually develop dementia. So dementia, where there are Lewy bodies in the brain, we just call that Lewy body dementia. It's an umbrella term. There seem to be a few different forms of Parkinson's where some people have a more aggressive course. And even in their first few years of illness, a lot of these symptoms that usually are seen much later appear even in the first three to five years, like dementia problems, severe balance and walking difficulties, even hallucinations or low blood pressure standing up. So some people do seem to have a more aggressive course. One factor that's often but not always seen in those individuals is they may have had a problem with acting out their dreams while asleep for many, many years 
before they were diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. So that does appear to be a risk factor. Another risk factor for having a more aggressive course with the illness appears to be carrying certain genes that increase the risk from maybe 2 to 6% late in adult life to closer to you know 10 to 15%. Uh, this gene is called the GBA mutation or glucocerebrosidase for short. There are other genes that can also impart risk. So for example, having an extra copy of or a mutation in the gene for the protein that accumulates in those Lewy bodies and is thought to cause Parkinson's called alpha-synuclein. One of the actual good signs is if someone mainly just had tremor for many, many years before they were ultimately diagnosed or before they had to start any treatment for their Parkinson's, that tremor predominant form may have a milder course where the other features come much later in the illness. So the majority of people have what we call a typical course where they can respond to medication uh, for many years for their motor symptoms. So five to 10 years before it starts to become more challenging and requiring multiple adjustments to meds or what we call advanced therapies like the deep brain stimulation or the Duopa pump. And then 15 or 20 years out, they may get to a more advanced stage where the dementia problems, hallucinations, delusions, balance problems and falls are, are much more challenging. So there's that spectrum, some very rapid course in three to five years, some you know, more than 20 years out doing really well, but the vast majority have that typical course. With these early indicators that you mentioned, like a sleep disorder, like specific genes and the variability in both presentation and progression, could you talk to us a little bit about the importance of getting an early diagnosis when you start noticing symptoms? So I'd say one of the most important reasons to see a specialist really experienced in diagnosing Parkinson and other movement disorders is that for people who are less comfortable with how to make that diagnosis, they'll often prescribe medications for the wrong condition and expose people to side effects of medication when the medication may not even be appropriate for that individual. So that I say that's one of the most important reasons to get an accurate diagnosis and to see a neurologist that's really experienced in the diagnosis of Parkinson's, essential tremor, and other movement disorders. The other important reason is there are a whole long list of other symptoms besides the motor symptoms that an experienced neurologist will be monitoring for once they make that diagnosis. And they'll partner with the team of other specialists in order to watch more closely for those and to make sure they're appropriately managed in the context of the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. In particular, if the person starts to have earlier memory loss, there's a very long list of medicines we call the anticholinergic drugs that can really worsen cognitive symptoms because they're blocking that brain chemical acetylcholine that's important for memory and attention. And so the neurologist's role is to help the other doctors on the care team understand which medications are contraindicated and could cause earlier cognitive impairment. 
Thank you for sharing about the importance of early diagnosis and some of the reasons why someone would want to find out as early as possible. And you mentioned that so much of what we know is because of research and various studies and our uh, brain and body donation program there at Banner Sun Health Research Institute. Can you speak to us a little about research? One of the most important challenges for me as a, a movement disorder neurologist is there are no effective treatments for any of these conditions that can slow the progression of the illness. While there are a few approved drugs for uh, ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, the effects are very modest. And when it comes to movement disorders that are caused by degeneration in the brain, we don't have any effective treatments to slow the progression. We're really just trying to improve each of the symptoms to reduce their impact on your, uh, the individual's quality of life and to try to delay that impact. The treatments we have available, particularly for the cognitive symptoms, have very modest effects. They're really the same treatments that we use in Alzheimer's disease. And so better treatments are badly needed. People often are hesitant to participate in research because they don't want to take a chance that they will take the placebo. And I try to kind of reassure people that sometimes being on the placebo is a good thing because if the medication turn out to have a, a bad effect, an adverse effect, then they won't have that side effect. But really, more importantly, we need to have studies where comparing the treatment to one that's inactive so that we don't mistakenly put treatments out there and charge you and your insurance money for it with the mistaken belief that it's effective or that it's even safe, and then only to find out years later that that treatment was not effective and not safe. And to have lost years or even decades of opportunity to have tested those treatments and determine that information by, by having too many treatments that people are taking without knowing if they're, they're effective or not, that really limits the number of volunteers to really pay it forward and ensure the next generation uh, will have effective therapies. I love that, the opportunity to pay it forward by getting involved in research. Dr. Sprecher, this has been a really fascinating and eye-opening conversation. Before we close today, give us your final thought when it comes to Parkinson's disease, dementia. Dementia is a very scary word, and sometimes people are very uncomfortable um, bringing it up in the course of the visit with, with me or with other neurologists. But it's a really important topic to just be open about the symptoms that are present from the beginning and to carefully monitor them. Because most people with Parkinson's for the vast majority of the course of their illness and over their lifetime can still lead meaningful, productive lives, even if they have mild dementia where they, they need a little bit of help with some of their everyday activities. We also need to come to terms with the fact that if people live long enough and they get to a very advanced stage of Parkinson's disease with a typical disease course, they will eventually get to a more advanced stage, including an advanced stage of dementia or with problematic hallucinations, severe balance problems. And at that point, it's very important to take advantage of all the resources available to you as caregivers, starting with 
advice of palliative care teams and not waiting to take advantage of the support of hospice services if somebody is very agitated and upset by their constant disorientation or hallucinations from advanced Parkinson's disease. So bottom line, take advantage of all the resources available to you as your loved one hits those milestones where, where they're indicated. Today, our conversation has been with Dr. David Sprecher, a neurologist and director of movement disorders at Banner Sun Health Research Institute. We appreciate you helping us untangle Parkinson's disease dementia. Yes, thank you so much, Dr. Sprecher. We appreciate you joining us again um, for all your inspiring work. And thank you for sharing your personal story with us. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks so much for all that you do putting this together. Well, thank you again. And thank you, Heather, for another great conversation. And thank you, Amber, for all you do behind the scenes with our editing and producing. And thank you to you, our listeners. Thank you for joining us. And if you haven't already, please subscribe, review, and share this podcast. I'm looking forward to our next conversation on Dementia Untangled. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Dementia Untangled. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Dementia Untangled is hosted by Heather Mulder and Janice Greeno, produced and edited by Amber Ayers, and is brought to you by Banner Alzheimer's Institute and Banner Sun Health Research Institute. We are supported by generous donations to the Banner Alzheimer's Foundation please visit our website at bannerhealth.com Alzheimer's and follow us on Facebook to learn about upcoming events. If you have questions or comments, please email us at dementiauntangled at bannerhealth.com. Mm-hmm.